You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender-questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitate at support meetings for families and individuals who have been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. Hi, Stella. How is it going? It's going very well. We have Millie Hill on the podcast today, which is really exciting, especially for somebody like myself who who had babies maybe 10 years ago. And when I did have babies, it was such a big experience. So, and I, 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 I jumped into it so deeply at the time. And I think Millie Hill did as well and became, and I think you, 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 you ran with it. You started a whole movement. As far as I can see from, from my research, and I knew about you anyway, you started a movement from a real, exactly where I was at, where so many millions of women before me was, where is the positivity? Where is the the, the support? Where is the movement mm. in this huge? And you started your own positive birth movement, as far as I can tell. Yeah, well, I mean, I didn't, you don't always realize when you're starting something like that, that you are starting something big, obviously. For me, yeah. it was just, you know, I I think the main thing was just seeing birth trauma being so widespread and just thinking, this can't be right, you know. Every and time it, I went, is it one in three or something like that? Yeah, that I mean, it's re- definitely report. one, and it's one yeah. in three. Uh, they say, but then obviously that's people who are actually, you know, diagnosably traumatized. Whereas there's also, you know, you've only got to go to your toddler groups, haven't you, with your baby groups and all that kind of thing. And you, every sort of, so many stories that you hear from women are of of, of really awful experiences where they they haven't necessarily had any follow-up with anyone or had to have counseling or anything but they they feel they hated it and they were distressed by it and sat, they feel sad or they you know they just feel disappointed so 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 Millie just to kind of uh summarize a little bit you started something called the positive birth movement because you felt there was a need can you help us um, just kind of understand what led you up to there and then maybe give us a bit of a bio about who you are and then, of course, we'll launch into some interesting conversation. Um, well, long story, <laughs> but but um, to, to try and cut it short, before I um, had my kids, I was working as a drama therapist, which is a form of creative psychotherapy. Um, and then after I had my first baby, I carried on doing some of that and, you know, juggling the whole like, you know, maternity leave and work and going back to work and all that kind of stuff. And um, then after I had my second baby, it became even harder. And I started to write a blog. Um, I just thought, you know, I've always loved writing. I did English literature at university. And I kind of pushed myself to, to write this blog, you know, because it was quite a big thing at the time, around about 2010. Um, a lot of people were blogging. And um, so I started this blog about motherhood and breastfeeding and parenting and birth. And every time I wrote about birth, it got this really big response. And it was like, it made me realize that some of the things that I was thinking, um, a lot of other people were thinking too, because I, I, it always got this huge response. So then I just became more and more interested in what was happening to women in birth. And I did some brief doula training and I was thinking maybe I could just set up like, I guess coming from this background of drama therapy, which is quite a lot of the time is group therapy. 
um, I had when I was pregnant and going to like antenatal classes, I felt this real need, like everyone was sitting around in a circle, just like they're doing group therapy. But then we were just doing things like yoga and drinking tea and stuff. And I just really wanted to, I wanted to, people to start talking. I wanted to hear other women's plans and hopes and fears and all of that kind of stuff. Um, so I sort of kind of thought, well, wouldn't it be great if there was a group where women could just come together and just talk about how they feel about birth and share their birth stories or share their plans? And so it just kind of started from that just as an idea. And then I realized because everyone was on social media at that time a lot, you know, it was a real sort of um, blossoming yeah. thing, Facebook and everything. I thought, you know, when you when you start to connect people through social media, they... Um, it's quite, it can be quite powerful because a, a woman can be told by one consultant in one part of the world, oh, you have to do this because of X, Y, and Z. But then if she talks to somebody else on Facebook group or whatever in another part of the world um, or the country, they, they might say, oh, well, I wasn't told that. And it's kind of like a way of really um, that information sharing that comes through social media can be quite, um, it can be really helpful in kind of breaking down some of the uh, imbalance of power, I think, and putting power back into women's hands. So I thought, oh, maybe we could have these groups where everyone talks to each other and talks about birth in a more positive way and shares ideas and thoughts and hopes and feelings, and we could link them all up with social media. So that was where the idea came from. And it just took off. Did it take off quickly or was it a, a slow burner? Yeah, it took off really quickly. It was literally just my inbox was just filling straight away as soon as I kind of put the idea out on this already existing blog that I was writing um you know and it was just Brilliant. everyone was doing it for free including me so it wasn't any sort of like I wasn't trying to start a business or anything it was just a grassroots it, movement it really reminds me of the way Mumsnet started because Mumsnet I remember reading that Justine Roberts they started it because she she went on holidays with twins and when she came back, it was just an absolute nightmare. And when she came back, she thought, surely there's so many other parents who've gone on holidays with one-year-old twins and mm. they could share <laughs> that information yeah. that we all learned in that last <laughs> awful two weeks we've just had. Because she suddenly had loads of tips by the end of the two weeks yeah. that she could have. So she thought, oh, we need to share. So it's the same thing. And they were a few years before you, but the very same kind of scenario as far as I and can And Net is a UK thing, right? So for our American listeners or our foreign listeners, what's Net? Oh, wow. It's massive. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's it's a huge website kind of, what is it? It's it's a massive platform for women to go on talking about anything to do with motherhood. Mm-hmm. And while, while Millie is, let's say, birth focused, Mumsnet is like anything. So it could be about your, a lot about your in-laws or about your child or about there'd be sections on bullying, there'd be sections on development and my child isn't talking or mm. I can't breastfeed and things like okay. that. Okay. But I know, just to go back to Millie, I know when I first uh, had my first baby in 2007, I remember I wrote, I read this book, The History of Birth. Oh, and it, yeah. I read it, that too. Blew my mind. I've tried to give that. I had to hand that book to so many other perspective models. Nobody's taken it out of my hand. <laughs> no, I don't want to read the history. Isn't it fascinating when you yeah. put it in context? It's, it's been barbaric for so many years, it was. Yeah, it's a brilliant yeah. book. And I, yeah, I, I've book. used it a lot and spoke to the author, actually, when I was writing my book, Give Birth Like a Feminist, because I've got a whole chapter in there about the history of birth and kind of, you know, that's quite similar, obviously, because the history's. <laughs> History hasn't changed. Um, So, Millie, in these groups that you started, what were you noticing? What were some common themes that were coming up that 
you felt like women hadn't really been given a place to voice those? What was coming up for you? Um, well, I'd say probably two main things. One was this language of permission um, all the time. So um, people talking about what they were allowed or not allowed to do um, and realizing um, that actually they were allowed to do whatever they wanted. So that's been a big thing, a big theme that's run through the whole thing. Um, but also just a more positive narrative. I think, you know, like lots of things on the social media sort of side of the positive birth movement would go viral if, you know, if we shared something that was like, you know, um, images of women looking really, um, there was one thing called birth just happened. The hashtag was birth just happened. And it was all these women sharing pictures of themselves when they'd just given birth, showing how alive and vibrant and powerful they were and it really kind of challenged that sort of narrative that you know yeah it's this really terrible traumatic awful thing and it it was some things like that that kind of just challenged the idea that you know birth is this sort of almost like an operation or a medical procedure and and but that it's more of a sort of empowering powerful experience they were they've always been really a popular part of it and that's quite big now on Instagram and everything. I mean, these days, 10 years on sort of thing, everyone's doing that. But it was quite, it was the beginnings of that sort of movement on social media, really. It must be amazing to think you started the, the positive birth movement. Like, well. <laughs> well, I'm not going to say that I started that whole idea. I think it was like a snowball that I was a part of. But yeah, it just was like something in the zeitgeist where women were just, you know, and it's happened in other areas as well, isn't it? Just women using social media to talk to each other and, you know, share. Well, it was, but I, I, let's say, gave birth in 2007, 2009. And while I was in the mindset of looking for that, it wasn't there for me to find, if you follow me. And then by 2012, you were getting it up and running as far as I can gather. So had I give birth, uh, maybe 10 years later, I would have found it. I was looking for it. You you know what I mean? But social media hadn't taken really off then, though. Yeah, it's made a real difference to women that they can sort of look at these birth videos. I mean, and there's so many of them now, especially on Instagram, and say, I want that kind of birth, you know. Um, Whereas before, the whole sort of narrative was dominated by kind of the television documentaries, like One Point Every Minute, where, you know, they they quite often show quite medicalised, disempowering births where the woman has to ask permission for everything and, you know, not the other way around, Mm. so... It's interesting because I have a really dear friend who um, also is a a doula and she's educated me a little bit on some of these issues. And there are some interesting parallels with with the way gender dysphoria is treated in that the, the patient becomes so highly dependent on the medical technology, whereas at least I can say with with birthing. I remember, you know, as a kid, the first time I saw an animal give birth and it kind of blew my mind because I had this vague notion of what it means when a human gives birth. And I I envisioned it as this very hospitalized thing with lots of machines and doctors and tubes and apparatus and things. And then I saw an animal give birth and I was like, oh, my God, like, wait a minute, obviously mammals have been doing this for the history of mammals and how is that possible that the the human birthing process has become so incredibly technologically focused and while i'm sure there's a fair argument that some medical intervention has been able to help women whose births would have otherwise been complicated or perhaps fatal for somebody i think that we're just my intuition says it's probably far far 
too deep in the realm of like medical dependency. Yes, it is. <laughs> is the short answer to that. Um, you know, it's, um, you know, talking, going back to your idea of the mammal, you know, we sort of kind of lost sight of the fact that we're mammals too. And, you know, and going back to Stella's point about the, the book about the history of birth, you know, the birth room has been built with the needs of the care provider, the doctor, the midwife in mind, and not the needs of the woman in mind. So what then happens is this mammal goes into an environment which is completely not designed for a mammalian birth and struggles to give birth. <laughs> and then, you know, and then the system rescues the woman from that struggle <laughs> and mm. takes all the credit. <laughs> I remember my second baby, uh, he, he ended up being a little boy, but um, he was breech. He was upside down and um, they made me. That's all I could say. They made me have a have a cesarean. And I really, really didn't want one. I really, really, I'd had a beautiful birth with my first girl, my first child. And so I wanted the same experience. That's all I wanted. I was just like, I want that again. It was by far the most powerful experience of my life. And like you say, the, the medics and they came in and you see, he wasn't only breached, but I, I did argue with them. And then he was a week late. And they were like, you know, you're 41 weeks pregnant. You know what I mean? Come on in. And they were just so basically, you know, if this goes wrong and he has cerebral palsy, you'll be living with that with you for the rest of your life. And it was so frightening and disempowering and stressful because all I wanted was me and my baby who were very connected mm. just to be allowed to give birth like a mammal. <laughs> yeah. If you follow me and we weren't. And I had the cesarean and it really threw me. It did. May I ask, Millie, let's say there wasn't medical technology and there was a baby that was a week late and breached. What would happen? I mean, medically speaking, I don't know if you feel comfortable speaking to that, but what would have happened had Stella not been accompanied by the medics? Well, you know, I'm not a midwife or a medical expert, so I, I can't really sort of say. And, and, I, and I think the answer probably is that nobody can say, and that's what makes it complicated because every situation is different. Um, and, you know, it's, it's important to say that, you know, the advance, medical advances have saved lives in childbirth. We need um, obstetrics. You're obstetrics right. is yeah. great. <laughs> Um, so it's not a kind of all or nothing situation. Um, but I think, you know, it's just, um, you know, I think even the World Health Organization says, you know, in, in the West, it's a, we have too, a too much too soon approach. Um, but it is difficult. It, your question kind of sums up the dilemma that, that the medical profession itself has of like, when do we sit on our hands? And when do we intervene? And they always intervene because they don't, who wants to be the person that doesn't intervene? And then, you know, regrets it literally it's, it's it's so hard but isn't that the entire kind of medical kind of yes. model yeah yes. it's, it's it's intervene come on we any can, symptom yeah needs a, an inter intervention right away as yeah. soon as possible because we know because we can whereas the 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 fear associated with just sitting back and waiting i mean i'm gonna give a small example and i swear we're gonna get back to it but this is really interesting i had a, a pretty serious um, intestinal issue in 2010 that required emergency surgery. I mean, I, I thought I was dying of the bubonic plague. It was like really bad. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I had this emergency surgery. And then a couple of years later, I was on vacation in the Netherlands. And I started having some stomach symptoms. 
And I got very nervous because they reminded me of this kind of emergency thing that happened a few years prior. So I went to a hospital in Amsterdam and I was really surprised by how little they did. They basically just said, have a seat. We're just going to monitor your symptoms. There was no MRI. There was no scans. There was no ultrasound. When I was in the U.S. hospital, I immediately got hooked up Machines. to a morphine drip. They put me through all kinds of tests and scopes and all these things. And I was just very surprised by the, the, the philosophical approach to symptoms in other in this other country compared to the US. So just kind of back to what we were saying, this is perhaps a very kind of contemporary American issue or and no? It well it is and it's also that's where it gets well I'm me and you were talking over Millie here. <laughs> we will invite you back in in a moment. <laughs> but um, it brings in that when the patient becomes the consumer, when you've paid for it, when there's mm-hmm. when there's insurance, when money comes in the door, you know what I mean? It really changes the whole nature of the, the patient-doctor relationship. And I don't think we realise how much we've missed with, with that change. I don't know, is it a change or with the industrialization of the medical model and the consumer model within hospitals? Something like that has really impacted. There's a great film about that called The Business of Being Born. I don't know if you've seen it, that Ricky Lake made. Um, but it's all oh, about birth in America this. and how money and, you know, pharm- the pharmaceutical companies and everything influence what actually happens to women when they go and have their babies. Um, it's a good film. Wow. So then you moved on and you did give birth, you wrote, give first you wrote the positive birth book and then the give birth like a feminist, which I love that title. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And was that bringing a more political feminist kind of um, theme into the, the movement yeah, well, I mean, as I think- such? Give Birth Like a Feminist was kind of the book that I kind of had in me right from the start of everything, really, I think, because, you know, that's what drew me into this topic in the first place was, like I said earlier, you know, that sort of sense of injustice that something is going wrong here for women. You know, women are coming through this experience harmed. Um, and should that is that right? You know, can that can that possibly be right? It can't be right. Um, so I always, and also that whole thing about, you know, um, the power dynamic and how women who, you know, in the 21st century, who I normally kind of associated with, you know, nest, being quite strong and opinionated and in te- in, uh, educated, etc., were getting into the situation in birth where they were being infantilized and, you know, becoming the permission seeker in the situation and that the power dynamic was so skewed. So to me, it just kind of leapt out as as an overlooked feminist issue. Um, and so that was kind of what drew me into the topic in the first place. Um, and then I did, you know, and then I wrote my my positive birth book, which is, you know, I love that book. And it's been my best seller sort of thing. Um, because, you know, it is a sort of like one stop guide for pregnant women who, you know, want to know every everything they can about, you know, what birth is like, and how to make a birth plan and all that sort of practical stuff. But Give Birth Like a Feminist was an opportunity to sort of write more about the sort of, you know, the, the political side of it and the historical side of it and, you know, what's actually going on here. A, fr- a friend of mine runs a, an organisation, very sad organisation, but a very worthy one, which is um, for parents or mothers who've been bereaved at birth. And uh, it's called Felicon in Ireland. And I asked her, I said, is there a theme among this? Like these are kind of babies who died in, in childbirth or very soon within the hospital environment, if you follow me. And she said, she kind of, there was a glint in her eye when, when I asked her, is there a theme? She goes, yes, there is a theme. I do hear something. And I said, what? And she goes, the mothers aren't listened to. 
It was like a punch when she said it. I was like, wow, I can so imagine it because I remember giving birth. You are infantilized. You're dismissed. You're not listened to. You have to speak very loud and very assertively to be listened to when you're at your most vulnerable. Like, Yeah, totally. I mean, and that's what people say they feel a, a positive birth is or a negative birth is not being listened to. That That is the key theme all the way through, not just during um, loss, but just in every birth, you know. Um, that is it. That's the key. It's and and a lot of times people think, oh, Millie Hill stuff. It's all about natural birth and having a home birth and stuff. But it it really isn't. It's about every woman having a positive experience. And the absolute key to that is what you say: is being listened to, and really being heard, and really being respected. Um, and you know, it, it unfortunately it's not happening enough. <laughs> You know, I've, I've heard you also talk about, and, and my friend that I mentioned earlier often talks about how um, we treat birth as though this is just kind of a thing that will happen in nine months and the whole nine months prior is just like, you know, just follow these particular recommendations which tend to be like, don't sit in a certain way or don't eat raw fish. But like, you've talked about how actually there's, there's a lot of preparation and I, I wonder, too, about the, the women who are not listened to. It's, it's interesting because if you don't give a woman information about how to tune in with her body and follow the cues of her body, then, of course, when she gets to the delivery room, you might not expect that she has anything of value to say. But it's like the, this whole process is really requires a certain kind of attunement. So can you talk a little bit about... What does what would a woman do to best tune into herself or to prepare for giving birth? Yeah, well, it's kind of a vicious circle, isn't it? Because I think um, a lot of women are given the message that, you know, birth is, first of all, women are told a healthy baby is all that matters. That's often repeated. And I've challenged that message a lot in all the things that I've written, really, to say, you know, that that should be the baseline of our expectations, not the pinnacle. Um, you know, of course, a healthy baby matters. Of course, everybody getting out of this alive is fundamentally important when no one's going to argue against that. But then there are other things that matter as well. And I think sometimes and maybe this is, you know, got a kind of long, deep roots back into time, women are kind of made to feel as if they are the sort of the vessel, the byproduct, the the means to an end. Um, and that in that case, what's the point in worrying about what kind of birth you have? And the system reflects that as well, doesn't it? Like we were saying, you know, the system says to, to Stella, well, your baby's breech, and so we just think you should have a cesarean. Ne- never in that conversation is there any discussion about, you know, how, how that might impact you sort of psychologically, personally, and, and in, t- in the rest of your life. That's not the agenda. The agenda is the healthy baby. And there's there's a kind of a long term impact that is completely dismissed because I've met and you've obviously met Millie parents and mothers uh, who have had a difficult birth experience. It lasts that yeah. that really throws people. It really does impact for a long time. Yeah. I've spoken to women in their sort of seventies and eighties who've still had tears in their eyes talking about their birth experiences. So it really does matter to women that day. And they do remember every detail of it, good or bad for the rest of their lives. So it is important. So I think that's the first thing that has to happen is that you have to challenge this idea that you just turn up, you get what you get. And also that's the other, another really powerful message you get what you get. get is that it's just potluck. Yeah. You know, you just go with the flow and you just turn up, go with the flow and you get what you get. And that they, that it, 
that kind of removes any sense of agency, power, control from the woman. So all of these negative messages are quite subtle, but they're kind of there. And so then when you come in, someone like me comes in and says, no, 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 I think you should make a plan. You know, in a way that's quite, um, you know, it challenges the whole system in quite a deep way. And, you know, we saw, I always talk about the example of Meghan Markle, you know, she really got um, uh, attacked, well, she gets attacked a lot by the press, doesn't she? But when she was pregnant, she got attacked in the press for, you know, being a, a diva, you know, because she wanted to have birth a certain way. And she wasn't afraid to say so. <laughs> mm. and <laughs> you know, th- th- that was my uh, experience and loads of others, that when you say you've got a plan, that the responses laugh. Oh, God, aren't, yeah. you, aren't you the diva? Aren't you the uh, yeah. neurotic? Like, the with your plan? Yeah, yeah. Birdzilla. Yeah. <laughs> there was an Irish doctor yeah. who used that <laughs> phrase, actually. I can't remember her name now. But yeah, um, yeah, that's, that's what people say. So it's very... Um, it's it, there's a lot of like subtle discouragement or not so subtle discouragement to tell women there's don't take any role in this everything you do think say want is pointless just sit back and we're in charge of this and i think it's really really powerful and you have to challenge that because you can actually play a role in your birth experience and you can influence it you can't control it of course no woman is stupid enough to think that if she writes a pretty birth plan and sort of uses different colour felt tips or something that <laughs> that everything's going to go that way. We're adults, aren't we? We're yeah. not, I mean, that again, I it's infantilising, isn't it, to yeah. even imply that we would but think like that. I wonder if there's also a kind of like a horseshoe effect because I'm, I'm also aware that there are some women who plan their cesarean section timeline to coordinate with like other important life events so of course that's different from having you know a a natural birth but do, do you think that there's there is a place where it's important to say there is a natural process that is going to take place I think that's different from saying we the doctors will handle the timeline and it's also different from saying you the mother can actually plan when you have the baby and when you're done with being pregnant I mean there's some kind of place in the middle I think does that make sense yeah I mean it's different for every woman and women want different things so you know to have that that experience where you everything's under control and you you plan it but then that's that's coming from a backdrop of a social and cultural backdrop where you know some women may feel they want to have a elective cesarean but you you'd have you could unpick that um and sometimes when you do you find that the other birth that they wouldn't mind having is a completely hands-off natural water birth where nobody comes near them and nobody touches them so there's those two again that's the another horseshoe there's those two rather extreme ends of the horseshoe which are actually quite close together and the common ground between them is that the woman is in control and that's what women don't want. They don't want to have the kind of birth you see on TV where it's all everybody else is doing stuff to the woman and she is like a passive object and doesn't have a voice and doesn't have any control. And I understand I would rather have an elective cesarean than have that kind of, of birth experience as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I completely mm-hmm. get that. Interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah. Before we shift over, can you just give like, what are some general tips in in some of your books that you have for women to to have a positive birth? I know it's probably very intricate, but what are some guidelines? Well, yeah, I mean, 
as we've been saying, don't listen to those negative messages that tell you that you can't have a voice and you and, and you get what you get. Um, spend some time thinking about what kind of birth that you want um, and don't be afraid to have like a plan A and a vision just like you would for any other life situation. Um, you know, it's okay to have a dream and because you are an adult, as we said, it's, you know, you will obviously realise that that dream may not happen, but you, it's okay to have a vision of that and also, and then make, you know, make plans accordingly. So this idea of a birth plan doesn't have to be a rigid, uh, fixed plan where there's only one plan. You know, it can be like, say, when you have a party plan, you know, you might have a plan for, you know, if it rains. So, you, you, you know, everybody's familiar with the idea of making a contingency plan. So, you need to think through all of your options and what you want in all of the scenarios and try and find within all of that what's really important to you. So, for example, it's immediate skin to skin after the baby's been born, which many women find really life affirming and incredible. Well, there are not many um, scenarios in which that isn't possible, even if everything goes out the window and you end up in hospital or even in a cesarean. So, um, you know, just don't be afraid to, you know, be in, take take charge of your choices, um, you know, and it, it's, it depresses me sometimes. I obviously haven't been speaking at any events for a while because of the pandemic, but when I used to, and I used to give my little talk about birth to sort of expectant parents, you know, quite often when they came up to me afterwards, that their takeaway was not, oh, I have all these different choices, but that they just, that they have a choice. Some, a lot of people still don't realise that they're allowed to say to the midwife or the doctor, um, can we have 10 more minutes to make this decision? Or can we think about having a birth center birth, um, even though that's not what you've suggested? You know, they they, they don't realize that they can take mm-hmm. charge and ask for what they want. Um, and they're, they're amazed when I tell them that. <laughs> Could I say there, I've noticed kind of like as a sweeping generalization, but I've noticed it quite often among parents and it kind of goes back to birth that some people have a, a strong internal sense of control. So they kind of take control often maybe of the birth, but also of the child's life. And they're going to go to this school and they're going to do this and they're going to have, you know, they're going to go to dance or music or whatever. And somebody else might be more an external sense of control where they very much you get what you're given if you follow me. So, and your job is to love the child you're given as opposed to shape and mould and guide the child to be who you think they should be. Do you follow me? I I am more guilty, definitely, of shape, guide and (laughs) mould. And I don't know which is better, but I have noticed some are very much like, you know what I mean? As in, this is the child I have. This is the birth I got. This is the child I have. And my job is to love them. While somebody else is... I got the baby, you know, whatever baby, and my job is to mould them, if you follow me. And it's two completely different senses, but I've really seen it over the birth and then on into childhood. And I've seen it to this day. I can think of friends of mine and it's just really like they're really shy, you know, Mm. that's the way they are. Mm. While I would think they're really shy. And so I have a 10 point plan (laughs) to to, to (laughs) go at this. You know what I mean? I'd be so kind of, I'd be so birthzilla about it all. And I think it starts with the birth. I, I really yeah. do. Yeah. I think, well, obviously, you know, maybe we don't talk enough about how birth shapes us as mothers. You know, it does. It has an impact. So maybe, you know, and I think that's another thing that's really important about it and really underestimated about it is is how, you know, you know, when you talk to, to women who've had like a really, really cool, amazing birth where they just felt like totally like they rocked it. They, and it's usually, 
it's usually what I call a hands-off birth when they have that feeling of like, you know, they literally yeah. did it themselves. They, they caught their baby I into their that. own hands, yeah. that kind of thing. They, they talk about the impact of that and how that goes forward into so many areas of their lives, you know, how they feel about their body, how they yeah. feel about their sexuality, their relationship, their work life. You know, they will, they will literally take that into a, a job interview 20 years later, that, that sense of, I can do this, I really can do this, you know, that powerful feeling. And, um, and definitely, of course, they take all of those things forward into motherhood. So I mean, I'm sure there's a whole book to be written there about the sort of psychology of, you know, your, how, how you become a mother through that birth experience, and then what's what you pick, what of that sort of you drag forward with you into the rest of your life, a lot of which is taken up by parenting and mothering. God, that's amazing. It's such a reframe. It's such a reframe. Mm. You know, what's what I'm thinking about is, you know, of course, our podcast is about gender and gender identity and gender dysphoria. And one of the themes, at least that I see a lot in my caseload is, you know, females who have gender dysphoria, who say one of the reasons they believe that they're trans or they believe they have gender dysphoria is because the idea of getting pregnant and giving birth is so terrifying to them. And I mean, I, I was always one of those young women that was like, oh God, I would never do that. And then of course, lo and behold, in my mid thirties, I just started to feel differently about it. But I also can't help but wonder, are some of these kind of messages that we have about what it means to be a woman, basically this passive vessel for this painful process of childbearing, it's kind of like, you know, the, um, you know, burden placed on Mary. It's still here. It, we, like, mm. or, or sorry, on Eve, you know, of like Eve, having yeah. to give birth Eve's on Mary. Yeah. yeah. So Mary it, it's interesting. <laughs> well, Mary as well. <laughs> yeah. um, but I, I really do wonder if, if the negativity and the kind of drudgery of what it means to be a woman and have to be the one to bear the children. Like why do you think that contributes at all to this alienation young women feel from the idea of giving birth? Do you think it's just developmentally normal to be 19 and not that interested in having a baby? I just wonder if all these things are mixed in together. Yeah. I mean, I think there are a lot of very powerful, you know, deeply rooted negative cultural messages about, being female which are not they're not new <laughs> um yeah and I think but the birthing is part of that I definitely remember being really terrified of, of giving birth when I first was pregnant that was the first thought that I had literally after realizing that I was pregnant was oh my god now I've got to give birth um so but your question is really really hard I'm struggling to sort of like find the answer to it because it's so deep and complicated isn't it like oh, I, it, it links yeah. as well with I suppose periods and you know the way an awful lot of children like well girls then they dread giving birth they dread their periods they dread their womanly functions almost mm. yeah and I mean as you know I've done this new book which is for preteen girls about periods and what got me thinking about that was this amazing um, workshop that I went on with this Australian woman called Jane Hardwick Collings who does a load of work around sort of female rites of passage um, and you know what she calls the women's mysteries you know and she's really cool and really interesting 
And I went on this workshop with her about um, menstruation and it really blew my mind because for some reason, and I don't think I'm alone in this, I had thought about um, menstruation and birth as really separate things. (laughs) (laughs) And when you think about it, it's stupid, isn't it? I know. Um, I mean, and that's another good one example is, you know, birth and sex being separate. You know, there's a really good book by Sheila Kitzinger called Birth and Sex. And when you see the title at first, you're like, oh, that's a bit weird. You know, well, those two things don't necessarily belong together. And then you think, hang on a minute. <laughs> wow. um, you know, and there's loads of parallels going back to, you know, what we were talking about before about, you know, um, you know, just getting, I mean, the, the old idea with, with female sexuality about, you know, just getting through sex in order to have a baby Uh, it seems to have sort of transferred in a way now to the birth experience you know you just lie back you put your legs in the air and everybody does what they have to do and then you don't doesn't matter what it feels like for you because you just have to reproduce (laughs) yeah yeah that's mind-blowing i mean it's unbelievable that thread is just continuing to follow through in the woman's life cycle yeah. And what, what Jane Hardwick Collings workshop got me to do was to sort of sit down and answer these questions with these other fantastic women in a group. We all kind of thought about how the, our own birth stories, like how we wrote them down, how we were born. And then we wrote down um, about our first periods and we wrote down about our mothers and our grandmothers and their births and their um, experiences around menstruation, what they were told, how, you know, and we, we tried to sort of pick through our memories and find all these threads between all of these different experiences in our maternal line. And it started to make sense to me, you know, like how... A woman, you know, Jane's point was that when you, if you meet a woman who's 35 and pregnant and you say to her, oh, you know, like say I come along with my book and say, look, read this book, you know, this will help you to have a positive birth. Actually, she's in some ways it's too late because she's already absorbed all of these messages about what it means to be a woman. And she takes all of those with her into the birth room. Um, and you know, so it's quite interesting to think about, to, to sort of go further back and think when you've got your first period, how was that dealt with by your family? What did they tell you about periods? You know, what, how did your mum get mm. on when she had her first period? And all of those sort of stories. And if you pick through them, almost in a kind of like psychotherapy style, um, you know, you can find out a lot about yourself and how how you feel about being a woman. And I suspect, although I'm not in your role anymore as a therapist, that it might be very interesting to do that with somebody who had gender dysphoria. Wow, yeah. I think period is a huge thing. I think it's understated. Uh, well, I'm, no doubt it's understated. And your your book, I've just bought it for my daughter, my period. Oh. Isn't that what it's called? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just bought oh. it, yeah. And it's, I, be proud of your period, right? Isn't it? Can you read the whole title? My now? period. Yeah, uh, find my period, find your flow and feel proud of your period. Yeah, <laughs> lovely. And I, I, I just think one is, isn't it amazing? You know, the way they always saw the blue, the blue water on the pads way back in the 80s <laughs> in and the 90s. Yeah, yeah it's so it's still now. Uh, it's, yeah. And I just think I just I've always thought this. Isn't it amazing that half the population are bleeding for maybe five or six days or more every month? And we're not seeing blood everywhere. Like <laughs> I just can't believe that we are all so amazing at keeping it from society. <laughs> uh, I mean, really you, you can't go to like a down 
downtown without seeing urine all over the place. <laughs> so go. Go. Keep oh, I don't go. You don't. You, you can see condoms kind of in playgrounds and stuff. Yeah. But you never. You don't actually see the visible pad yeah. or the blood or you don't see women leaking here, there and everywhere. I just can't get over it. I just can't get over mm. it. We are so good at hiding it. Yeah. That, like your average boy has never seen a woman leak or yeah. he hasn't seen the impact of it or he hasn't seen it in the bin because we have our little tidy little push it away and it's a little rolly packets. We've, sp- we've become so good as women in keeping ourselves very prim and keeping the the blood part of us away. And it's it's like a jungle, like, you know, it's it's it's, it's really barbaric for those few days. And yet we, we maintain our, our polished veneer. Well, I think it's mm. like a jungle. And I some think people, it's very animal-like. You yeah. Know? And some of us are even sort of hiding it from ourselves, you know, like literally don't, some women don't even want to look at their, their own period blood. And, you know, so it's really, it's fascinating, really. And, you know, it can be so challenging to sort of suggest like, look at it I mean there's there've been people doing things around it like um you know on Instagram and artists doing it you know and it still has this real power to shock people yeah putting it on their faces or you know making art with it and yeah that kind of thing um I, I, got a, I got it. a moon cup recently and I was amazed by it I was like this is the most extraordinary thing I could say to my husband you've got to see this and he's like I can't, I can't wait <laughs> I was like no you really do this is really amazing <laughs> but it Look, is it did is you know amazing. that you can put it on your plants <laughs> did you know you can feed it to your plants <laughs> It's true. I put that in my my kids' book. I put that in my kids' book with a warning. Do ask your parents. (laughs) So I'm wondering, I mean, it's like in this moment, I'm wishing that somebody like Lisa Marciano was here to help us with this because I wonder what is the kind of deeper psychological reason why periods and period blood has this power on us as a a people? Why are we so... I mean, you saw my mouth. I was shocked when you said, feed it to the plants. I was just shocked. <laughs> and then I thought to myself, why Why is this so shocking? And I mean, yeah, at least you go down the garden center and buy fish blood to put on your plants, don't you? <laughs> I didn't know that. I, yeah, you do. I, you I do. kill a lot of plants. I don't do anything good with my plants. <laughs> but I mean, there, there is something incredibly primal and in mammalian about the idea of our bodily fluids mm. and the way we use them. Whereas I think in like civilized culture, all of our bodily functions are kind of kept behind a closed door. So I'm just curious about what is the power of this? And well, we can't, we can't just erase the process or completely sanitize it though we've gotten very good at it and mm-hmm. I don't know if that's necessarily like a bad thing but I'm just curious of how shocking it is to talk about I mean to think of people smearing period blood on their face I have a visceral reaction to that and it's not yeah. positive and I have a period and I'm very happy with my period I'm not someone who's creeped out by myself but I, I'm wondering why there's that power well, I mean, another person who would be very good to get on to talk about this is is Jane, because, um, you know, she would have a really interesting perspective. But from my point of view, I would say I think there's something in here about female power and how, um, you know, we have been, kept, you know, uh, patriarchal attempts to keep us 
from that power, I think. I mean, there's a lot of shame around periods and you see that played out in other cultures as well. You know, um, there are lots of different cultural practices around, you know, uh, women not being allowed to do certain things when they have their periods, women being even isolated in menstrual huts and all that sort of stuff. There's various degrees of that. And in birth, you know, as well, I think another sort of interesting point is that, you know, when women do have this, have really powerful birth experiences, they become very powerful women. They feel that power, as we said earlier, for the rest of their lives. And I have sort of speculated, is there a reason why we are culturally trying to keep women from having those experiences? Because the number of women who have those births that where they where they walk out the other side feeling absolutely glowing and amazing and empowered and like it's changed their life are so minuscule. The vast majority of women do not get that experience, even though if you sat down with a room full of women and told them about it and said, would you like to have a birth like that? They'd all say, yes, please. Well, most of them would. Um, some of them would still say, no, sign me up for the cesarean. And, you know, and maybe that that would be there. That would be empowering for them. But yeah, I think there's something in there about women's power and how by giving women shame and disgust and negativity about their bodies, you can potentially keep them from their power. That brings me um, to what happened to you when you noticed that there was, you know, there was, um, as far as I remember, it was around violence to women and you, you made a comment on Instagram or something like that, and you got really, really badly treated. Mm. And it, it feels it's very linked to that. It's kind of, it, it was a kind of a, a kind of get back in your box woman. Yeah. Can you summarize what happened, Millie? Yeah, well, basically it was um, last November and, um, you know, I'm not going to lie for the past sort of couple of years before that, I had been reading quite a lot about um, sex and gender and been quite interested in what was happening um, and noticing what was happening around language in the world of maternity and birth and breastfeeding. Um, so I had that on my radar for sure. Uh, I'd seen Stella's film, for example, and, you know, thought about these issues a bit. But yeah, in November, I was, um, it was the International Day to End Violence Against Women, as it happened. And I'd been thinking about that that day. And I'd been thinking about obstetric violence, which is a kind of umbrella term for, um, and some people don't like the term I know, but it's the term we have to, to describe kind of birth abuse. Um, you know, everything from unkind words to lack of consent to lack of respect for body boundaries to, um, you know, really nasty, um, you know, abusive behaviour towards a woman in birth. Someone tagged me in a post about obstetric violence, and I've been thinking about obstetric violence that day and how it's part of violence against women that doesn't get talked about very much and the post kind of muddled up these slides on this instagram post kind of muddled up what i the, the, the language i felt because although they did use women in some of the slides the one that jumped out at me said um that uh birthing people were seen as the uh the weak fragile sex. sex the fragile sex thanks yeah the fragile sex and I was like, eh? <laughs> because the idea of being the fragile sex, I mean, that is, that belongs to, you know. Patriarchy. Uh, yeah. And, and it belongs to the idea that, you know, of 
you know, feminist ideas of women being mistreated on the basis of their sex and then to sort of muddle it in with this idea of birthing people. I, that doesn't make sense to me. That's, that's, that's a real mixture that doesn't work. So I said, um, you know, that I think obstetric violence is violence against women and it's women who've been seen as the fragile sex. Um, so let, I kind of said, let's not forget, you know, what we're talking about here and why. And, um, and the person replied saying, well, that actually I think obstetric violence can happen to trans people and non-binary people, which of course I agree. But my point was, it's happening. They're still female in yeah, terms yeah. of their if sex. they're having anatomy. a baby, yes. yeah. yeah, it's so in that it's sense, female anatomy. It forms part of violence against women. You know, V A W capital letters, um, and that was all I said. I said, you know, if. If you think that, then just at least it should say women and birthing people rather than just um, birthing people. And I didn't think any more of it. And then it just exploded on social media with people screenshotting my comments, which, I mean, you can see I've put them in the blog that I wrote. Uh, you can see what I said. <laughs> yeah, It really, to me, still doesn't seem... You were seem... very gentle. You were very nice. Yeah, I mean, I didn't say anything rude yeah, or obnoxious yeah. or hateful or anything, but it was just, I was then accused of being dangerous, hateful, uh, transphobic, um, poisonous, vile. I mean, the list of words, a piece of poop, <laughs> bleep, um, don't know if I can swear on your podcast. Um, <laughs> and you know, they kept on saying, don't buy our books. It was very, it was incredibly orchestrated um campaign against you it must have been really frightening it was really frightening um and I think you know what's really frightening about those situations when they happen is is that you don't know what's going to happen next so like now I can talk about it and I the story is kind of over and I can feel safe talking about it but when it was actually happening it it's it's so like you've gone down the rabbit hole it doesn't make sense at all you keep looking at what you said and then you keep seeing what people are saying about you and it keeps coming the, the horrible horrible and people tag you in all these things they're saying as well so they want you to see it it's not like they're just talking amongst themselves they want you to see them saying all these things about you and saying you know don't buy her books she should be you know throw her books in the bin and all this stuff it's just really you know frightening because that's part of your livelihood you know and you i've got a family you know so and you, you kind of think, well, what is going to happen next? It's a horrible feeling. It's, it's really, you feel out of control and you feel scared. I saw in your statement, I thought it was such a good line. You said something along the lines of, you know, when you get uh, called out like that, it triggers a sense of shame in us because yeah. it's, it's public kind of disapproval. It's the most powerful silencing technique there is. It's frightening and it's really, really intimidating. Yeah, it totally triggers a sense of shame. It taps into all the parts of yourself that maybe think those things, you know, that, that have neg low self-esteem or negative feelings or imposter syndrome and all of those things. But it also, because it doesn't make sense, one of the only ways to make sense of it is to think, well, it must be true because otherwise it just doesn't make any sense. So then you find yourself thinking, well, maybe I didn't realize how what an awful person I was. Maybe it was kind of a secret that I was keeping even from myself. Um, when I went on that uh, a podcast the other day, um, uh, the guy on who was doing the podcast was talking to me about this thing, this, this concept of unmasking, which made a lot of sense to me. It's like a way of, um, you know, 
attacking your opponent in a way but by un- by unmasking them by kind of revealing them to be this you feel found out yeah by sort of revealing the monster behind the mask kind of thing to, to the world is, is a kind of really powerful technique and I, and I really could relate to that because I felt like that's what was happening that, and even that I was maybe being unma- unmasked to myself does that make mm, sense mm-hmm. it was horrible <laughs> yeah and it, it's a kind of like a mind pretzel because you start to because the accusations and I know because I've been I've been accused of these things that like on the surface Millie obviously you look like someone who's dedicated your life to trying to make things better you know like it, there's obviously a philanthropic impetus behind what you do but the accusations make it seem like all of that is a cover for these dark um really nefarious ugly things that you want and and then you almost have to ask yourself oh crap am I like subconsciously doing this horrible dark thing that I wasn't aware I was doing yeah but then when you realize oh this is happening to like a lot of people who are actually really good people you Hopefully you're at the place where you realize, oh, this isn't really about me. This is about this weird kind of witch hunt thing that's happening yeah. right now. Yeah, totally. I think that does really help and it takes a while to come to that place. Mm-hmm. And definitely you can't do that when you're in the, th- in the thick of it because when you're in the thick of it, you're like in, you know, what is going to happen next kind of mode and, and very um, it's very anxiety provoking in terms of, you know, um, am I going to get emails from publishers or, you know, other people that I work with, you know, and as, as you know, from my blog, I did have emails from an organization called Birthrights who I've, you know, supported for nearly a decade. And they are very, um, highly regarded even by me still now, and I regard them very highly. They're an incredible charity. Um, and you know, so to have an organization like that also kind of like join in and agree with the people who are calling it's you horrible. all of those names that, that made it, that kind of powered it up even more. And so, yeah, I was really, really frightened that, that the next thing that was going to happen could have been anything. It could have been, you know, I mean, you hear stories, don't you, of people like having their books pulped and things like that. Mm. And I thought, I was literally thinking like that I was thinking next thing's going to happen is someone's going to just say, well, we're going to pulp your books it. and mm. never speak to you again. Okay, even the, even the word, even the word cancelled, like, you know, you cancel a show or you cancel an appointment and, the, you know, the concept of you cancel people, it's it's obscene. It's a, it's a terrible, awful, hideous concept that has arose. Like, I do know uh, Quillette wrote that or released that great book, Panics and Persecution, Persecutions in a Digital Age. And they it was just a series of essays from people who were cancelled in the last five or so years, maybe a little bit longer. And they just talked about how when when you're when it's happening, you're you're out of control because everybody else is putting narratives on you and you don't know, as one person said in their essays, like you don't know all the opportunities you've missed. You don't know where, you know, conversations in offices with people saying, nah, let, let's not ask her. Let's ask well, somebody else. 100 percent because i mean i'm self-employed and and i i feel like that right now i mean to be honest i feel really good about everything that's happened in the last few weeks i feel really positive that i've told that story broken the silence that i felt i was under you know i kind of come out from under that spell of of feeling like there were lots of things i wanted to say that i couldn't say so for me it's been in that sense been really cathartic really positive experience but in terms of the future like you say i mean I, I do feel slightly paranoid at times that, you know, it's it's going to have a, a long-term impact. Um, 
and when you're self-employed it's not so black and white like if I was in a job and they said you're fired then I would be able to say well this is because this you know it's obvious that that's why you don't want to work with me anymore but but you know when it's you know people used to ask me to speak at conferences will they do that again me too exactly. I was the same when the film came out I was in terror for the first like where you were in terror thinking I don't know where I'm being I'm being dropped but were you silenced from November to July effectively and then you decided to release a statement yeah 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 well I just sort of I mean obviously it's been like a really weird times for all of us anyway hasn't it with the pandemic and everything and you know after Christmas was over then we had this massive lockdown in the UK where I had I've got three kids and they were all at home doing homeschool and everything so I kind of you know and I've been working on this book and so um you know I just felt like I just could keep my head down um but you know then I got that book done and and also there was lots of other things happening like the my four starter ruling um and you know there was a really fantastic essay by um, the novelist Chimamanda Adichie, oh, yeah. uh, so which good. really inspired me. I thought, wow, that's God, just so beautifully yeah. said. And were, were you yeah. thinking, I'm going to write something, and then you saw she wrote it, or was it coming out of you, or how did you decide to yeah. write it? Yeah. Oh, well, I just, I knew that I had, to, well, I kept thinking, I'm never going to talk about this, I'm just going to keep calm and carry on and pretend it didn't happen kind of thing, because that's, in some people would say that's the sensible thing to do, because in in terms of damage limitation is it better to do that and just to to sort of bluff it out yeah, really yeah we obviously don't agree with that we're here on a podcast yeah. <laughs> well I mean I sort of thought I just feel like I I then that was having an impact on me all the time because I kept thinking I want to retweet this or I want to you know share a podcast speak your truth to. I want to speak my truth and I feel like this is a really important conversation and I feel like I have something to contribute to it and I don't want to be always sort of tiptoeing around the topic and I just I just yeah and then but your just- entire movement was about telling women to speak up and say their piece <laughs> and you know be heard and you know what I mean so I can see why it just must have rotted you when you were feeling yeah. silenced yeah it did. And so, um, yeah, I'm really, really glad that I did talk about it because it's been, it's been great. And I've had so much support. It's been, could, could, could I ask when you released it, like the day when you released it, were you kind of like, press the button, hide or what happened? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was absolutely terrified. Yeah. I mean, I, I knew um, that there was going to be this article in the Sunday times the next day as well, because I'd already spoken to the journalist about the blog and she was very keen to write a story about it. So I knew that it was going to be like, boom, boom, you know, my blog coming out that evening. And then that by midnight, the Sunday times article was going to be live as well. So it was a bit nerve wracking, I have to admit. And, you know, had a couple of gin and tonics. And (laughs) (laughs) And this is the statement called, I will not be silent. It's very good. Yeah. We're going to include it in the notes. Oh, thanks. It's very powerful. I mean, I, I, I wrote it about a month before I published it and I showed it to a lot of different people, you know, all kinds of different people and, and discussed it with lots of friends. And, you know, everybody said, yeah, I think you should share it. So I did. And then did JK Rowling tweet it or did she say something fabulous or something? <laughs> yeah, she stepped in because, well, I, there was loads of act, activity on Twitter around it. And I think one person made some comment like, you know, haven't you learned, said to me, haven't you learned from what happened to JK Rowling that you should, you know, basically keep quiet? 
And she then retweeted that and saying, no, that's not what women have learned from J.K. Rowling, basically. Wow. <laughs> and she tagged me and, yeah, my God, and only fainted when I came back to Twitter. I'd, I'd been with um, this photographer had come to my house to take my pictures, which sounds terribly glamorous, but it was that is not the kind of thing that I normally spend my morning doing. But because of that, <laughs> I'd had my you know, computer off completely and I hadn't even looked at my phone for about three hours. And then I turned my Twitter back on and it was like, <laughs> amazing. <laughs> it was amazing actually and I'm so grateful to her because yeah it, you know, things like that they help you back on your feet really but it, not just her I mean thousands and thousands of people have messaged me um to say they support me and sadly many of them have said they can't support me publicly because a lot of people are still very afraid to enter into this conversation at any level but um, it certainly has made me feel so much better and I feel like I did the right thing. And I hope it helps take the conversation forward because, you know, I, you know, I hope people can see that I'm still here. I'm, you know, I'm still alive. I haven't been sort of like terminated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, I think once you get over the initial terror, and especially somebody like yourself who, you know, you you are independent in terms of your work, you're on your own and... Once you realize that, you know, you might have closed some doors for certain types of conferences, but I promise you've opened a lot of other doors. Yeah. Because there's there's a, a lot of people right now like us who have confidence that we are good people, we're, we don't have nefarious motives, and we're just trying to speak about our experiences and our opinions. And I think that's really valuable. Yeah. I do. I do think it's really important. It's a really important conversation. And actually, you know, I also realized that because of the work that I've already done and because of the area that I'm already in, I kind of have inadvertently entered into this conversation, whether I like it or not. There really isn't a way through for me without, you know, without entering into this fully because you are in the, the birth and maternity world, you know, and, and I don't think I'm going to necessarily stay in that world so much. I feel like I've, I want to, to move forwards and do other things. But I'm always going to be the author of those books and I'm always going to have things to say about it. And you, it is very sort of compulsory. The language uh, changes in the birth and maternity world are very compulsory. You really do stick out if you if you center women in your language, um, in those worlds at the moment. So it's impossible unless you're going to just say, well, I'm just going to just change the way I speak and I'm going to add in these extra words and I'm okay with that. Then unless you are prepared to do that, then it's very difficult to stick around really and wow. not, and not have the conversations. Yeah. When you think of words like chest feeding, it's just wrong. Yeah. Just wrong. It's not the right word. It's not the right descriptor. It's not anything. And so, yeah, I suppose I, I do like yourself. I think language matters and we have yeah. to protect language. If we're going to keep ourselves sane, you well, have to yeah, let I mean, words represent things. First and foremost, I think that's how I came into all this is as, a, is as a writer and someone who's good with words. And so words was what was bothering me about what's going on. Um, you know, I was asking questions and getting in trouble for just asking questions saying, you know, why are we saying assigned 
male or assigned female at birth, as a writer, that made me very curious because I thought, well, first of all, I'm a writer about birth, so I know it doesn't happen at birth. I know that that the sex of the baby is not assigned. You mean there isn't there isn't a committee who assigns? Well, you have a a flip of a coin, right? You have a scan, don't you? Or prenatal (laughs) tests, and they tell you then. So it doesn't happen Mm. at birth. So I was thinking, that's Mm. not, um, you know, linguistically accurate. It's assigned sex at ultrasound. That's the new terminology. Oh, well, maybe they changed it. I'm just kidding. I just made that up. (laughs) I thought someone might take it and run with it. (laughs) Oh, no, I genuinely thought that that was true. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't it sound like the next step in the process? I mean, they're kind of going in that direction. Oh, somebody told me a really awful one the other day. Oh, it's, it's gone out of my head, but it was something like um, it, it, the way it was worded. It kind of implied that it was forced on you rather than just being assigned. It was like oh I can't yeah, the I think Benjamin Boyce mentioned that in yeah, his interview it was him. with you. Can you remember like, what it was? Assigned forcibly at birth or, or something, <laughs> something ridiculous. Like <laughs> yeah, <laughs> mandated <laughs> at birth. Yeah, <laughs> punished, assigned, punished, yeah. sex punished at birth. But genuinely, know. it's just not accurate. You know what I mean? Nobody's assigning anything at birth. You know what no. I mean? People have sex, or they, or they have IVF, and and a person is produced, and the person has an anatomy, and the anatomy dictates their sex. And yeah, there, there is no committee. It's like a biology class for third graders that we're talking about here. I think that's the infuriating part about it. It's like we can be honest about the reality while making space for like some other philosophical argument about why we should, you know, regard people differently. But to to lie about the biology feels so pointless and, and obviously unsustainable. There is so much confusion, even in the world of midwifery, about biology at the moment and about the you know the the difference between sex and gender and even in you know a a conversation I had with some midwives a few months ago um you know they I was talking about there only being two sexes and they got some of them got really upset and said that I should respect other people's beliefs and these were midwives and I just thought this is nuts because this is like flat earth stuff you know it's like I was just thinking that science it's so is amazing. science yes. biology is biology yes. and everyone yes. can believe what they want to believe but when there are facts in front of you that are proven facts about you know that are long established <laughs> a nose is a nose and a mouth is a mouth and yeah I mean I guess yeah. you know about the thing called Project Netty, which is like um, a, a bunch of scientists who all signed this declaration to say that there are only two sexes. And I listened to a podcast with the scientists that set that up, um, Emma Hilton and Colin oh, Wright. Oh, yeah. I think they, they Fond started of Beatles. It. Yeah, but now it has like thousands of signatories. But they were just basically saying, you know, it, this is so basic. The science of this is so basic and it's so, you know, there are no there are no papers to cite to prove this because it's like there are no papers to prove that water is wet. It's just basic stuff. The other day I asked a colleague, is there a paper to cite the fact that if somebody's gonads are removed, they don't produce hormones? And they were like, "Um, it's just basic knowledge. It's it's weird that we have to, like, like Project Netty, like you have to actually have some sort of a new it really is like a flat earth that's, kind of scenario yeah. it's so well, weird well that's a key thing and that's why I get so exercised and we all do it about compelled speech and about silencing it's because to be able to think you have to be able to speak 
so that you can find your words. If there aren't words to say what you're trying to say, you're at, it's back to George Orwell. It's, it's cutting our thought processes by silencing our speech. It's cutting our ability to have complex thought processes. It's so frightening. It's chilling. It is. But having said that, in terms of like, you know, someone who's having a baby, I 100% support that if they wanted to be called something different, like a birthing mm-hmm. person mm-hmm. or different pronouns, mm-hmm. whatever, mm-hmm. then, you know, that should be respected. But what I keep saying at the moment is that it's, it's a very different matter when you're changing language at a population level. If you're sitting in front of somebody, and you'd yeah. be the same, I expect, as the therapist, you mean, as therapist, you might want to explore why they wanted to change it, blah, blah, blah. But just generally, if it was just a midwife to to a person who's having a baby relationship, and they say, you know, I, I like, like me, I mean, my, my real name is Melinda, but everyone calls me Millie. So I would say to the midwife, can you call me Millie, please? Um, even though Melinda would probably be on my notes, and she would hopefully call me Millie. You know, mm-hmm, so it's, mm-hmm. that's just a basic acknowledgement of, uh, you know, person's individuality and preferences. And, you know, I would 100% support that. But it's very different if you start mucking around with language in documents and, you know... And um, medical training. I mean, that's the thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It changes it completely. It changes, you know, I've said this about women and birthing people, which is the mantra that you have to repeat in the birth world. You have to say women and birthing people. But then I said, if you, you know, if you, as soon as you do that, you're changing the meaning of the word woman because you're saying there are two different categories of people that give birth. There's women and then there's birthing people. So instead of women meaning a female person, it's it means something else. Because that's, wow. that's exactly what the point of this is. It's decoupling the word woman with female. And, yeah. and young people who are growing up deeply holding these beliefs, they don't understand that to somebody like me, the word woman just means female. It doesn't mean female with long hair it doesn't mean female wearing a dress it just means a female any kind of female yeah I think they're decoupling those two words Mm -hmm. and you know I mean language of course changes over time but I think this is not kind of an auxiliary word that we use every now and then it's just a word to describe half of the population so if we start mucking around with that definition I think we're in we're going to see some unintended consequences. Well, yeah, I mean, I think we already are seeing unintended consequences because we're seeing male-born people competing in female categories in elite sports. You know, we're seeing um, male-born people taking roles that are normally, even under the Equality Act, only open to female-born people. We're seeing, you know, male-born people on panels talking, you know, about women's issues um or women only shortlists and we're seeing male-born people in uh women's spaces and prisons and refuges it's, it's happening already it's such a good point and i know we're coming to the end but i do want to say it because it was such a good point that helen joey's raised in her book and she went into a serious detail into the prisons and especially in canada and she pointed out that you know female prisons you know they are certainly in ireland 95 percent of women in the female prison are in for petty crime and generally that you know, extends around the world. And so the programs for these women is about self-development. It's about assertiveness, because a novel, huge proportion of those women would have been abused. There, there are very definite patterns of who are those females in those prisons. Mm. Now, if you bring in the trans women, it's a completely different cohort and they have a, a, a quite a high 
other issues, you know what I mean? So let's say, for example, I'm still in Ireland for my stats and, and, and in England, but like they would be, let's say, a hyper percentage of them are in for different um, crimes such as violence or sexual violence. And so the programs for them is very different. And so the sa- so the kind of the easiness around the safety for the women's prisons has been taken away because there's suddenly an, an influx in the ca- Canadian prisons of violent offenders that weren't in there before. And the programs are going to need to be attended to. So the entire landscape of the prison is going to change if you're going to bring in a new cohort that wasn't in the previous cohort. And I'm not saying they all need help. They all need the programs. They all need the kind of the attention. But you've got to get the categories right so that the right attention gets to the right group. Yeah, maybe this might be a way to end anyway, but don't you think that this is, as therapist, can you, I always think often at the moment, this is all about boundaries. You know, it's about, I mean, what got me into trouble was trying to hold a boundary, trying to say, I, I was holding a linguistic boundary. I was saying, this is the meaning of this word and I will not allow it to be changed. I'm holding that boundary. And what you what you were saying about prisons made me think about that too, that, you know, it's it's all about edges and lines around things and Mm. as women perhaps we're not always as good at at, you know because of this whole really irritating be kind stuff that goes on which I see on all the t-shirts in my when I take my kids you know my girls shopping it's all like all the t-shirts say you know be nice to everybody and and the boys have been told be a superhero (laughs) yeah or be a dinosaur or whatever but yeah um yeah, I don't know. I just thought it'd be interesting. So I'm asking you the question really rather than saying, but do you not think that's something here about just boundary holding? Women holding boundaries. Women asserting themselves for the right to have an opinion and very much back where you started, women being able to speak up. It does feel like your theme is quite, there's a golden thread through your work, which is empowering women to say, you can speak up and you can have your boundary. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're right. Oh, thanks for that. That's true. <laughs> well, Millie, we, we, you know, I honestly would love to have you on for another episode where we talk about menstrual cycles. Would you be willing to come back and chat with us about that? Because I'm very interested in this. That's so Yeah. Mad. I would yeah. love to come back and talk okay. about that. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, you know, there's even a little chart in my, in my book for sort of nine-year-old girls, which I'm sure you really oh, like. Oh, I would um, where love, they can, I would they can love to hear there. about it. Yeah, the periods and such a that's nice thing really to do. cool. Yeah. Okay, well, we'll plan for that next time then. That would be great. Okay, Millie. Thank, Thank you, you so much for coming. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. This podcast is partially sponsored by RHYME, Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics. RHYME is a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. If you found value in our show, please review us on iTunes and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash wider lens pod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services. 